Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we review our favorite RPGs, collectible card games, MMOs, video games, PC games, and bring up interesting topics and things that we'd like to share with everyone. Sit back and enjoy the show. This is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, assigned to Ragnarok Story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the 5th Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. We're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for coming to uh, the 3 o'clock panel. Two Perfect Heroes. My name is Natalie Ryan. I'm your moderator for this panel and a panelist. And I'm going to introduce our two other panelists. And I'll briefly introduce myself, introduce the topic. And then I'm going to get us started by asking our panelists some questions. Uh, but we are here to be interactive with you and include you in the conversation. So um, we definitely want to you know, take questions from the panel and anything you guys want to add. Uh, to the conversation, we'll, we'll do that. Um, and if you raise your hand and I don't call you right away, it's because I'm letting you know one of the speakers finish what they're saying. But keep your hand up, or yeah, I'll try to. Think. I, I get to you, get to you all. Um, okay. First, we uh, on the panel. Um, I'm like to draw one. All right. This. Okay. And we have Ed Horn Arch. Hornart, sporting his abs, yes, Mr. Valentine. <laughs> this, this goes perfect with his bio. What kind of guy writes romance? A guy who married his high school sweetheart a week after graduation and still lives the H-E-A heavily, happily after decades later. 48 years, actually. A guy who's a certifiable Harlequin hero. He inspired... Vicki Lewis Thompson's Rita Award finalist, Mr. Valentine, which is dedicated to him. He started out writing contemporary romances for silhouette books, but these days he concentrates on science fiction romance. He's been a teacher, a principal, a technical writer, a salesman, janitor, and a symphonic oboist. He and his wife Judy live in Tucson, Arizona. They have three sons, a daughter, a mutt, and the galaxy's most adorable grandsons. Horrible. Yay. And uh, on the other end is Catherine Wells, the author of numerous novels and short stories of speculative fiction, including Mother Grimm, a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award, Builders of Leaf Houses, the 2015 and Lab winner for Best Novella, and Native Seeds, which is running in the current issue of Analog. And I'm your moderator, Natalie Wright. Uh, I am the author of six novels, including the award-winning half series. The Akasha Chronicles with over 2 million reads on Wattpad, and all around geek and nerd, uh, lover of all things nerdy. Okay, um, this panel is Two Perfect Heroes. Uh, so the idea of this is that um, starting out with a great main character, 
and the question of what makes a protagonist great, um, but also the overabundance of good character qualities can, you know, sometimes make the hero or the main character um, obnoxious, might be a word, or just not, you know, too, too overdone. So, um, what makes a, a, a good hero is the fact they overcome the darkness and flaws, um, or, or what? So, I think where we maybe should start is with our panelists defining um, in their own words or your own definition of what you consider to be a great hero, a great protagonist, a great main character, um, ones that you love maybe, and why, and uh, then we'll also in a little bit talk about your own work and maybe some of your favorite characters you've created and you know, and why you, you love them to this day, even though maybe you wrote them a while ago. And how about you? What is, uh, for you, one of uh, some of your, well, your favorite characters? Well, one that is, to me, too perfect. I know that I am in a minority, and I should not even say this at Comic-Con, but Superman. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> He's too OP. Yeah. I mean, the guy's got kryptonite to connect, but nothing else. Nothing else. Uh, he, you know, so it's, it's hard for me to identify him. Identify with him. To me, someone like Spider-Man, much better. I mean, he's got problems that he has constantly have to overcome, and the conflict, the interior conflict that Spider-Man has, makes him a much better character in my opinion. Um, the Spider-Man, I'm sorry, Superman has no interior conflict at all. Yeah. I'm sorry. I know some people like that. I, as when I was young, young kid. And, was kind of on the short side, and I was younger than most of the other kids. I would have loved to have been Superman, but uh, I don't think he's as good a character, in my opinion. In my own work, and the book that I have here, uh, The Trial of Tom Lee, it was my first science fiction book, and I do write science fiction, not just science fiction romance. Uh, but this is the first book that I wrote after working for Silhouette Books. There, everything has to be a happily ever after, and things like that. Well, in this one, you've got a woman who has been framed for an act of terrorism on an alien planet, and the alien's idea of justice is to have trial by combat between the accused and her supporters and up to 300 people who are accusing her. Well, she has 300 aliens after her and one old dude, you know, four foot tall alien supporting her. And this one human, the policeman who arrested her who just can't, just can't tolerate that kind of injustice, follows her along and he finds himself falling in love with her. Well, she's like 22 and he's nearly 50. They have nothing in common. And when I first started writing it, um, the feedback that I got on critters.org was that, you know, he's just every space fleet officer you've ever met. Nothing to speak with So I had a friend who uh, suffered brain damage in a car accident. So I gave my hero brain damage. So he has, a, mostly he's fine, but he also has these kind of weirdnesses in him that uh, maybe help me figure out what would be right. So I kind of picture him as Riker 
with brain damage. And once he had the brain damage, once he had a flaw, once he had something that he had to work to overcome inside, then he became real to me. And uh, Dante Roussel, that name too, he's still one of my best male characters. He's not a typical romantic lead by any means, but I love him. So I think that having some sort of problems to overcome inside and then sometimes leak out to make a, a character much better than one who's so so you need to leave immediately just go <laughs> because I have been in love with Superman since I was like four oh. and I don't care he's perfect to me no, <laughs> but I, knew, I, I, I knew this so people I'm talking Superman from the 1950s and 60s was, was my Superman and I shipped him with one woman and it was it was all heavily around <laughs> great fun for a four or five six year old girl so I love uh, I'd like to start by sharing a, a little anecdote about when I was in college, and uh, I'd been writing short stories since I was like 10, and I you know, was convinced I wanted to be a writer, but you, you didn't major in writing at the college I went to. There was no curriculum for that. You could major in English, or you could major in theater. Uh, so I was a theater major, therefore the, the theater professor one, one uh, was my advisor. And so I had shown him some of my short stories to get some feedback. And his comment was, you know, you're, you know exactly what your character is going to do every step of the way. I thought, well, of course. I know exactly. And to give any situation, I know exactly how that I, didn't occur to me that that was a problem. <laughs> Um, so many years later, uh, I, I have figured out that, that your characters need to have to make choices and to have different options that they struggle with. Uh, and, and, and to me, what makes a, a great character uh, is they have conflict. Uh, something I learned in my theater studies, we were talking about you know, script writing and, and all the wonderful things you learn there. The first thing you learn is that uh, conflict is drama. You have to have conflict. If you don't have conflict, you don't have a story. And if your character has conflict, they're a richer character uh, than than one that, that has no conflict at all. Uh, and sort of as an outgrowth of that, uh, the, the best uh, characters are ones that are very real. I mean, you look, you look at them and you say, I know this person. Not, you know, like you're, you're watching them. I had this reaction when I first saw the sitcom Modern Family. I saw all these people, I thought, I know these people. I, I don't mean I know the characters. I know these people. <laughs> these are real people. Um, so, so that's another aspect of that, that great characters. They, they have to seem real to you. And, and the other, uh, I think really critical piece is that your characters need to grow. Really great characters. They have this conflict, they make choices, and then they have to deal with the consequences of it. And the result is uh, hopefully growth of some kind, growth of the character. And, and to me, that's what makes really great characters. Uh, 
take for example, uh, I had to write these down because I get flustered. Um, I don't know if, if anyone follows the uh, Lewis McMaster Bouchold series that Miles Morkosikin, uh, all her books are wonderful, but she has a, uh, a character who has uh, brittle bone syndrome. And uh, he, he wants so much to be the action hero and to join the, the uh, Imperial Guard, and, and, but he breaks. You know, he can't do anything physical without breaking. Uh, and and uh, so he has to live by his wits, and oh boy, does he have wits. So uh, that's, that's a good example, of, and he grows. But since you don't know that, okay, let's look at a real uh, uh, well-known example, Mr. Spock. Now here's a man who's half human and half Vulcan. You want to talk about a conflict, you know? And yet, as as you watch the series and how he progresses, he does grow. And you, you know, maybe not in the first few episodes of the first season, but as it went along, he became very real and, and someone that you could really identify with. So I think he's just an excellent example of a of a really great character. Not too perfect. Although it would be easy to try to do that with the Vulcans who have no emotions. Uh, but, but I think he's a great example. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking of my own works and, and who would I give as an example? And well, certainly Coconino, who is in the, the, uh, the series, the trilogy that I have, uh, is a, a young man who is going to save planet Earth. He's going to save Mother Earth, you know. And, and he does. Uh, but it costs him, and he has to make hard choices along the way. And and then as he continues through the series, uh, he has to deal with the consequences of his choices, some of which are not very pleasant. One of them is that he has to grow up and be a grown-up and take a grown-up's part in society and not be the action hero. Uh, and then the third book, he's an old man reflecting on his life, and he finally, at the very end, has learned to laugh at himself. Now there's growth. <laughs> From Bruce Willis to being able to laugh at yourself. <laughs> so he's, he's uh, a good example, uh, I think, of a character that, that, that really you know, evolves and grows and, and is, is not too perfect. As you guys were talking, I was thinking about how, in a way, it seems like um, the, but whether a character is one that it resonates or not, sometimes it's very subjective. Oh, yeah. As opposed to objective. I mean, you guys, I, I take it you guys differ on Superman. Is that? Yes, yeah. I'm with you. I like Superman. You love Superman. You I'm with you. I right. think he's a too perfect hero. I'm Spider Man all the way. So. I just think that's really interesting because I, I find that a lot like I'll love a character and then a friend of mine that maybe has read the book or seen the movie. Or play the game is like, eh, you know, they don't like them and vice versa. So it it's hard to define, I guess. Um, but maybe it, a lot of it gets to whether you relate to the character um, at all. And I and I think so. I'm glad you brought up Spock because that's what I was thinking when you were saying that. That um, I think why so many people love Spock is because oddly he's the most most human sometimes, yes. where we really empathize with him and the, some of his struggles. And I think that's a big piece of whether or not a character is great, is whether we can empathize with the character, um, whether it's a dog, a car, a, a robot like Wally, um, or other kind of robots. Um, we, we humans, 
empathize with them. My favorite character that I've created, I, I've uh, had some I struggled with. I write multiple points of view. I'm aliens, I'm young, I'm old, I'm girl, I'm female, I'm gay, I'm straight, I'm a lot of different things in my, through my characters. Um, all of them hard, but the one that's been the most satisfying is writing the, the alien-human hybrid and his arc um, of really trying to deny, because he's training his humanity, his human side, being trained and genetically engineered to be a weapon, therefore not being empathetic, to one that could make the ultimate sacrifice out of love. So, and the arc of that, and the poor guy, I tortured the snot out of him over 300,000 words. So, you know, seeing how he, how he related to that and going through that with him was, was a lot of fun as a writer. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of my readers sympathize most with him, who is the non, kind of more like a Spockian character through that. So, um, are there, do you guys have anything else to add to like the ideas of what for you makes a, a character that you really like and enjoy. Also, maybe let's get into characters you love to hate. Um, you know, because I think our cur our modern uh, media, I, we were just talking about this before the panel even started, that we have more anti-heroes, more like, quote, bad guys that are actually like people's favorites, uh, yeah. whether it be Loki or, um, right now, I can't remember the guy's name from Breaking Bad, someone. Oh, Walter White. Walt, thank you, Walter White. We have, you know, Deadpool. I mean, characters in the 1950s, you would not have had them as, like, a main character. Um, do you guys have any comments about any of that? Well, you were talking about Spock, and I think that one of the things to me that makes Spock more human, as you mentioned, is that things aren't always easy for him. I mean, a lot of stuff is just totally easy for him. But when it comes to anything dealing with emotions, then he really has to think about it, he has to work at it. And oh, let's face it, a lot of us real human beings, I assume we were both real, uh, um, we puzzle a lot about things. When it comes to emotions, we have to work at it and think and make decisions like Spock. And I would dare say that Captain Kirk doesn't spend too much time thinking about these things. So he, he's the anti-Spock in that regard. Yeah. Sheldon is a great, I guess, modern example of uh, that Spock. idea, right? Yeah. Of that scene. Yeah. yeah, and he's really lovable, even though he's totally awful. <laughs> he's really lovable. Yeah, Catherine. Well, to, to get back to some of the, the characteristics that I really value in a character when I'm reading or watching a movie and, and what I try to instill in, in my characters and in my central characters, they have to have core values of some kind. Even if they're aliens or if they're from a different culture, of the earthbound culture or an alien culture, they have to have something that they believe in, even the bad guys. They have to have something that they believe in that's important to them, that, that they serve, that is beyond self. Uh, and, and the other thing is just a sense of humor. Oh, please. <laughs> I'm a sucker for a sense of humor. Um, in, in, ter <laughs> in, in terms of, of, of bad guys, yeah. Um, like you were talking about the Walter White character. When I heard the description of this series, you know, a high school chemistry teacher who winds up selling that, I thought, well, I don't want anything to do with that. But as you watch his progression, 
you know, from the chemistry teacher and how he slides down and, and just becomes this thing. You know, it, it's so compelling. And, and it's the conflict in him. And, uh, and, and you know, that's a real person. You can see this happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. relate to mm -hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the other one, the one that I have more trouble identifying with, and, and I, it wasn't so hard in the beginning, but as the series goes on, it's harder and harder to, is uh, the Frank Underwood character in House of Cards. I don't know if you follow that at all, but I mean, talking about evil, <laughs> but he doesn't start out evil. Again, like Walter White, he seems to get just get deeper and deeper, and, and and you have to believe there's a blackness at his core that allows him to do this stuff. Yeah, I, you know, um, like I was thinking about anti-heroes that are heroes. You know, like uh, the loner character. I mean, a classic anti-hero. I can't, I can't think of the guy's name right now, but. In the spaghetti western, you know, Clint Eastwood and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. Thank you. That's why you couldn't So, you know, that character I think is a classic anti-hero, terrible guy in terms of his actions. But then he makes a choice that we can relate to, which is in that moment, deciding to help save the town from even worse people <laughs> that maybe don't have a moral core. So he, I guess he has some kind of a moral core, and I'm just wondering if that's where the um, where the Underwood character is falling flat for you is at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, a certain point. But like if he's like Cersei Lannister. I mean, there for a really long time you could say, okay, but she just loves her children. Gosh darn it, she loves her family, so she's doing it all for her family. And even though you love to hate her, you're kind of still with her because at some point you think she could have some redemption someday because she loves her family. And then all her kids die, and don't tell what happens because I haven't finished the last season. But I'm like, you know, what? Where is she going to go from here? Now is she just completely evil? You know, because as she's starting. I guess you know, I mean, she's starting to lose me. But she's lose that with that. Yeah, part. I think the I mean the issue that you mentioned about the moral um, core. If you look at a lot of those characters, like the Game of Thrones or, or any of the major characters that you've been talking about, it isn't necessarily their morality that's in question. Because like you said, she loves her children. Uh, lots of people love their children. Lots of people don't go out and do the things that she does. Right. So it becomes more about the behaviors and the actions that she takes in terms of that. So some of the, the core morality may not be the issue, but how it builds from there right. is whether it you know, Philip Zimbardo talks about this path that he takes is either a hero or a villain in social psychology, and a lot of it stems from that. So the core isn't necessarily the, the problem, but behaviorally how they stem from the stories getting there. So with, like you said, with good intentions, and yet it turns out drastically different or evil. The, the intentions but bad decisions. Yeah, yes. the, the scariest bad guys, the most chilling bad guys, are the ones with good intentions. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in in Mother Grimm, which is the book that was Philip K. Dick finalist, the, the bad guy is he's doing this for the good of you know, his city that he lives in. This is all for their improvement. Now it takes away the individual 
rights and choices of an individual, you know? And, oh, yeah, he lives very comfortably along the way, too, because that's just one of the perks of the job. But in his mind, he is saving the people that he's living with. Take the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm going to save you, and I have to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Star Wars, Emperor Palpatine. I mean, there's a whole way you can look at that. Absolutely. People, you know, have written about that and talked about it, that from his perspective, you know, it's he's the good guy, and the rebels are the villains, and you can totally, I think, watch it and look at it in that exact way. I and I think it's exactly what you guys are talking about, because uh, he's saving the empire. It's one thing that I have heard, and I've always tried to keep it in mind when I write a bad guy, is that the villains are always the hero story and you have to keep that in mind that there's very few characters who choose to become evil although there's a marvelous one in the, the book Mystic River which is not science fiction or comic by any means but at the end after one character has gone out and ended up having to kill one of his friends he decides okay well I guess I'm evil and I'm going to be as evil as I can and it's so chilling because you have seen him all through the book battling between what what kind of decisions he's going to make. But that's unusual most times. He's battling the dark side. Yeah. The stormtroopers, <laughs> they think they're they, yeah, in a role. Yeah. I mean. yeah, when we're talking about good and evil, I've been wondering, and I don't know if you guys have any comments about this, um, again, if, if modern audiences are more um, because of the rise of the anti-hero as a very common now uh, kind of main character, if we are seeing um, a shift away from the, quote, too perfect hero. I mean, the idea that, I mean, George R. R. Martin is a great example of really imbuing his work with um, a lot of gray. There's just, just, there's no black and white. We're all you know, we're people, we Did all have... <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So is it, you know, is there a shift what? away from the two perfect heroes? So it's... now we really, as modern audiences, want to see... There, there's kind of a pendulum in, in literature uh, in that regard because the anti-hero really came up in, was it the 20s or the 30s? Uh, where, where the 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 characters, you know, the the whole of the, the western, you know, and the tough cowboy like you were right. talking about, uh, Clint Eastwood film, and and the antihero, and then then it went away from that for a while, and now it's coming back again, and and so it's I think it's kind of a natural ebb and flow in in literature, and it it most likely is reflective of the society at the time. Um, and you, you go back to, was it Pope or and, and those writers back at that uh, time period who said that this is the best of all possible worlds. So, you know. Um, Moliere. Oh, Moliere, okay, yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, things go south and we get away from that. This can't possibly be the best, you know, the, the crash of the 18, it was, after the 1895 or something. Anyway, 
big economic crash, and you know, the, things, the literature reflected that a, a, a less optimistic point of view. And then it came back again, and then as the, you know, the, the 30s, and then things kind of got uh, dismal again. And, and then in the, uh, the 50s, you know, on top of the world, uh, we defeated the Nazis, we can do anything, we're gonna go into space. And then the, the 60s with all the social turmoil. <laughs> so uh, I, I think very much the, the prominence of the anti-hero in our, our uh, literature probably reflects uh, societal uh, attitudes at the time. I would agree with that. I, you just look at our society right now. We do not idolize our celebrity heroes. We look for their flaws. If we just deep delve deep enough, maybe they would harassment or something like that. There's got to be something wrong with them all. You mean we like, uh, through our social media and media, we like to look at the dirty laundry? Yes. I think we've always liked that, though, right? The, the, like, yeah, I think, about, always, yeah. think yeah. about Marie Antoinette and was like, yeah, yeah all of the salacious, um, they had like body cartoons of her and stuff, like any Anything negative they could find about her, they would like put it in a like a they had naughty cartoons of pornography of her and stuff uh, to really you know like spread around the rumors of her of her bad deeds. I think we that, that that's that's kind of a, a a natural tendency in human beings, you know, spawned partly by jealousy and uh, uh, they're so high and mighty there must be something wrong with them. Yeah, uh, and of course there is. Yeah, yeah, and but, but you know, none of no one's perfect, right? There's yeah, speak for yourself. I forgot. There, there, there are times when our society is more forgiving of misdeeds, and times when it's really not. Uh, and and in the 1960s, uh, <laughs> as you can tell, us when I grew up. Um, what, we we were were looking at things that uh, and, and our our parents were just they they fought the Second World War that was behind them they wanted to look at the good things, but we wanted to say wait but this isn't right and that isn't right and this could be better and we need to fix this and they they were resistant you know to to that because they'd already fixed Nazis and they wanted a little respite now, uh, and and then it. The, the 60s passed and we got comfortable again with our, our lifestyle and you know so those those ebbs and flows come and go and, and again are reflected in the, in our, our uh, literature. I sort of wondered whether it's ever going to ebb and flow again because now that we have social media and everyone can find a million people online who, who shares their own hatreds and things like that. Um, I don't think we can put the genie back in the bottle, at least I don't know. I think that any person who would kind of be a hero is going to have such an underground resistance to them. That I, I don't know. I, it's hard to, to, uh, for me to imagine someone really emerging as a, an accepted national hero. You mean in real life? Real life, yes, real life. But in fiction? We can still create something. Yes, that maybe gives us even more reason to read fiction or to get into superheroes. You don't have that conflict about it. maybe that's why 
superheroes are such a big thing in the movie theaters these days. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's so much about superheroes that makes them great. Uh, one is that they tend to follow uh, archetypes that, you know, uh, Campbell and the Jungian archetypes and things like that. It's just, they, um, they're fabulous at, at that. And it's kind of like the modern mythology. I mean, some of them are mythological, like Thor is old school mythology, revamped into a modern form, Wonder Woman, same. And then because they're, they are so ancient, really, in terms of our psyche, we, we relate to them for that, for that reason. One of the reasons why I like Thor is because he's not perfect, so I like uh, Superman, but also, I don't know, the Viking in me, the, the Norse blood in me, probably just, I love Thor. And my husband thinks he's a, uh, there's a child present. Um, uh, he has a word because of the DNA is me. Um, you know, and he just can't stand Thor. You know, so and back to our, but I, I don't know, I probably love him because of the archetype that he is, you know, the Norse. The and, and, and archetypes are wonderful to work with because they often have built in the qualities that we seek in, in, in great heroes uh, in terms of making mistakes, uh, having conflict. Uh, but, but you have to be careful as a writer not to rely too heavily on the archetype because you have to individualize it. And, Yes, yes, right. <laughs> and and you, you need to adapt them to their, their surroundings and so forth. Right. So that leads me to one of the last questions I have, and then um, definitely you want to open up to questions. Is uh, I know that this may be, uh, this would be a whole panel in itself, but just uh, maybe a few ideas about what you do in terms of your own character creation. Um, Ed, you talked about this a little bit in terms of that one character giving them a flaw, but what kind of process or what do you what do you do when you're creating particularly your main characters? Well, in my book that's I have coming out uh, December 4th, Rescuing Prince Charming, it's part of a series and the, the hero of Rescuing Prince Charming was in a previous book. He had a secondary role. He was disgraced totally uh, when was an alien prince and he was going to marry this American woman who then jilted him for a petty thief who kidnapped her. And they, for a prince, this was an unbearable disgrace. So I brought him back as a hero. How is he going to overcome this very public disgrace that he was dealt? So I chose him very specifically for his flaw, for the wound in his past. Catherine, I have a hard time describing the process of how I create my characters because it's very organic. And usually what happens is I'll start to work with a character and something will happen to him or an idea will come to me that just, it's like, oh, that makes everything work. I, I, it's, I, it's not like I planned it. And I frequently, when I'm writing a novel, I'll be five chapters in and go, oh wait, I know what has to happen. And I have to go back to the beginning and rewrite the whole thing to set it up so that this is, you know, part of, uh, so the, the characters, 
Um, there's a wonderful play called Six Characters in Search of an Author, in which this man is haunted by these characters that he, he wrote that, that have become so real that they kind of follow around in his daily life and bother him. And, and that's really uh, what happens uh, uh, in my character development is, is one day the character will turn around and talk to me and say, no, no, this is you have a degree in psychology. Don't you think that? Yeah. <laughs> Imaginary people talk. Imaginary people talk. I know. And and I would. I had my my older daughter uh, also a writer. She she's been one of my best editors since I she was twelve. Um, but she you know as she struggled through her own growth as a writer and, and I had been telling her about this you know if, you know the characters will talk to you and. She she came to me one day and said, "You're right. <laughs> they they talk to you, but I I was I've been struggling with an idea for a, a novel that I, I want to do it with a, a character who's certainly not perfect because in the end he finds out he is the cause of his own downfall. You know, it's an Oedipus Rex kind of a thing. Uh, but I I didn't really know much about him until. Uh, he told me his name was Link, and I thought, he's black. I didn't know he was black. I don't know anything about writing a black man. How do I do this? And so I've been somewhat intimidated. And then it was was helped when, when the secondary character showed up. Uh, he's the alien, and, and I haven't got a physical description on him yet, but he's kind of like passive-aggressive. And he keeps sniping <laughs> at the other guy, and then now the okay, now the tension between them is building, and and we're gonna they're not there yet. I'm not ready to write the novel yet, but this this is just part of the growth process when when I create characters is you have to kind of put them in a situation and see what, what okay what are you gonna do now, and then see how they act and how they interact and and. Then you get aha, and you go back to the beginning and rewrite the whole book after that point. Yeah, for me, when I wrote my first novel, I don't. I will admit I didn't do a whole lot. I don't think with really thinking through the characters in a major way. Yeah, I thought that I did at the time, but I was probably more engaged with creating a plot. And I got to the end, and I was like, I don't know, God, you know, because I can I can make a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I thought it was amazing, and then. And then you write another one, and you're like, "Oh, I wasn't. I wasn't the writing god. I was kind of like, you know, a writing toddler, you know, kind of thing." And so the so the more I write, I would say, the more I don't know if you guys can relate to this. The more I actually spend on time with character, unless I'm a plot. And at this point, I would say I don't even plot really hardly at all, other than to say I have a beginning, a middle, and an end in my brain of where I want it to go. And then I spend a lot of time working with creating characters and trying to give them all a distinct voice, um, you know, so, that, so I'm not sound, they're not all uh, homogenous. Um, and I, I have to have a name. So I've been working for six months on a, on a new project and I couldn't really get anywhere because I didn't have a name. 
I don't know if you've ever had that happen before, but it's only had a oh, yeah. name for her. I am pinning the crap out of this. I've got a pin board like with a thousand pins on it. I know what she looks like. I know what she eats for breakfast. I know all that. And I, but I felt like I couldn't really know her because I didn't have a name. Yeah. And as soon as I gave her a name, then two brothers showed up. Yes. And although I have four siblings, um, it's, it's really about her and her two brothers. And this spine of their relationships forms the whole crux and basis of the book is most of the conflict. I have two sisters, so it's really the three of us, <laughs> only uh, she's got two brothers because it's worked out better for that for the book. Um, so Quinn and her two brothers and her middle brother, like much like my own middle sister, um, I hope the one to hate me. <laughs> my, sister was my, my sister was my villain growing up. <laughs> My poor sister. She, um, I love her now, but growing up, she tormented the crap out of me. So you've got your revenge. Yeah, I will get my. Finally, after fifty years, I'm going to get my revenge and write her as the um, as the nemesis of of my character in a, in a novel. But yeah, for me, uh, at this point in my writing, working on the seventh novel, and, and uh, I'm sure you guys have written a lot more. I just really now feel like the characters are the are everything, and the world and the plot come after. Once I know the characters, if everything else then falls in place around them as to who she is and her arc. And I'm going to write a revenge story, which I've never written before. Which, so all this is great information. I know all this is <laughs> So I, I'll say no more. But I've never, um, that'll be a challenge because I think revenge characters, I think about Arya a lot. And um, I still, I love Arya uh, Stark, but she's on a revenge path. And that can be, I think, tricky because they can be, they can be really uh, unlikable, right? As a character, we can, we can begin to unlike a person who's only been for revenge. I think for me, because I love, like, Arya was one of my favorite characters from the beginning um, toward the end, as far as where they're at now, I won't spoil anything. Um, she has become more likable for me again, but it's not that her character became unlikable in terms of I disliked her as a revenge character. What became unlikable for me is there was a moment where, for me, her story became stale because she was so myopic. She was so revenge, 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 revenge. Yes. And there wasn't a depth to her character. Um, they didn't keep that depth. I feel like, again, they brought that depth back um, as the story has progressed. But there was a moment where I was like, I liked her so much at the beginning, and now I just feel... I feel like stale with her, and that was actually really upsetting for me because it was like grieving the loss of a, of a favorite character, even though she was actually still in the story. Right. That that she was actually one that had died. <laughs> yeah, I think you're echoing some of the sentiments of that Ed and Catherine touched on too, of just in general making that character feel real and, and not stale and dimensional with problems that they're solving and more to them. So I, we don't have that. Uh, we have a few minutes left. I want to make sure, and um, the time left, that we can get to any questions or comments you guys all had. So, do, does anyone have any questions or want to add? You know, like your own um, ideas of like some of your favorite characters um, in in media. Yeah, I love Severus Snape because there's a lot of division between the fan base of the books. Is he a villain or is he a hero? And there were, you know, I fight with people online because I insisted from the first book that he's actually a good guy. And I'm glad I was redeemed in the end. But I mean, you read the books, you get to the end, and by the end, everyone pretty much agreed, okay, he actually is more of a hero than he is a villain. I just think she wrote him so well by making him ambiguous throughout the series. But I, I felt like from the beginning, she was telegraphing to the reader that he was not all bad. 
but it was really subtle. Right. There were little things here and there that, like, three books later, you could go back to that scene and be like, oh, that yes. explains it. That's yes. kind of foreshadowing. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but Thank you. didn't catch it. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. He is, a, I, yeah, Severus is a great, great character. Really great depth. He, oh, he might be one of the best characters, really, yeah. in the whole series, in terms of the depth of that character. Well, yeah. yes, like Harry Potter is probably the shallowest character in, in the whole series, really. It's the secondary characters that really come to life in that series, I think. Yeah, that could be. That could be. Yeah, they, they need to evolve. Really great characters evolve. Whether they evolve upward or downward, they evolve, they change. They're, they are affected by the choices they make. There's also, I'm, I'm thinking like Snape and Dumbledore both um, also though have this really rich backstory that uh, is revealed slowly and we don't even necessarily know, but it's there. Right. And so there's a depth to them and their motivations behind the scenes. Yeah. So she's written a whole lot, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure she wrote, you know what I'm saying? Like she knows everything she, about Albus Dumbledore up to the point where we first see him that we as the reader don't know, but that depth is there somehow and we feel it because he's real to her. And I think it's another thing we touched on. I think characters, when, as the writer, when they begin to feel real to you as the writer, they're talking in your head. You see, when they talk to you, you start to walk like them. You know, you start to think about them. Your family comes up, you're like, what are you doing here? Because they don't belong in the world you're living in. It's I, like, I do that. What do you mean it's spring? It was winter in the book I was writing. <laughs> yeah. So there was another hand over here. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of um, the technical side for writing it, obviously we're talking about uh, heroes that are too good, and you touched a little bit on um, villains can't be too evil. From the writing side, is it easier or harder to fall into the trap of a too good hero or a too evil villain? And how do you avoid that? I personally, as a writer and as a reader of manuscripts, I find that um, the villain, even just that word, it tends to be, people tend to write very stereotypical, shallow uh, antagonists, villains, bad guys. They're just like evil. And I think we are, I am seeing um, more progress with, with writers. Um, and I think, you know, definitely something that modern audiences want to see better villains. You know, Corella DeVille is just an evil woman that wants to kill puppies. I mean, my gosh, how how much more just blatantly evil could you be? She's a cat woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty, sh I, I, I think she's an example of a pretty shallow villain, right? I mean, yeah. she's just, and it's tempting as a writer to just fall back on that because it's right. so easy to do. Right. They're just. They're just evil. And, and we as people like to fall back on our prejudices and say, well, uh, he, he voted for so-and-so, he's a bad person. No. You know, it just, we have different opinions. I think the two that it, it uh, what did you hear? I've lost my train of thought. Sorry. It's <laughs> over there. The train? Sorry. Yes, the train of thought. It's, it's up there somewhere. Well, yes, Ed, well. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, I, for me, I think that is maybe I, from my perspective, uh, it's easier to fall into the trope trap when creating the antagonist than with the main character, with the antagonist. So with Heroes and Enemies, we're saying three manuscripts, what 
do you do to maybe avoid that? Like, do you spend extra special time with the antagonist, or do you take a moment at the end to sort of like make sure that that's not happening? So, if you're going to write a really good antagonist, I think how you work on that is create the exact same way you write your main character. And some of our most satisfying literature, I think, is the ones where the antagonist and the protagonist, again, if you if you reverse it, it could read you it could be their story. Yes. You could imagine that in another story, in another book, there is a whole story to that person. You don't need um, to know what they're why they're doing it. Right. So just as as an example of, of what we've been talking about. In Beyond the Gates, I have a character. There's this. There's a competition between two scholars. So we're not talking evil, evil. But there's there's the one that's with the the, the central character, and there's the one who's racing against them. And you know, so you have the good scholar and the bad scholar. And partway through, they reverse. So you have to have enough depth to your characters. And the emotional. Um, I was just. Uh, I just took a course with an online course with a scripts doctor who works with Pixar and other films. And so, just if you're a writer, um, you might want to just just Google like the emotional core of Pixar, and you'll probably find him. But he talks about um, whether it's an antagonist or a protagonist. If you want to bring out the, you know, the emotional core, it's all about empathy. And there's there's kind of like a formula that he has for it. But um, I can't, the emotional, uh, the emotional core of Pixar. Um, and that is helpful, I think, just, it's a very quick um, way of looking at uh, empathy. So, uh, Commander Sturgis is, uh, maybe she's good, maybe she's bad, we don't know, she's the antagonist of book one. But just a simple thing that I did is, uh, she has um, orchids. So she is bad. <laughs> she does a lot of bad things. You know, she's willing to kill pretty much anybody to further her interest, and she thinks she's doing the best thing. But she has orchids, and you'll see her taking care of her orchids. And at the time, sort of the intuitive thing that I did, and then when I was taking this course, he was talking about the uh, the bad guy that feeds the dog, pets, you know, pets the dog, keeps has a cat. It's that life, little tiny humanizing trait. And, and, and so I was kind of cool, like, oh, I just kind of intuitively gave her, you know, to take care of, you know, it was just something to do, but um, to give them some kind of humanizing trait, show them something other than just making an evil decision. Sid in Toy Story is a not bad, bad guy. Toy Story, yes. The next door kid, Sid. Yes. He's a monster, but really he's a little kid. And has a lack of supervision. Um, Sid, your pop tarts are ready. That's like oh, you know, this, he's all blowing up the back door. <laughs> his mom's cooking a pop tarts, sugar glazed treats for breakfast. So it's kind of like we uh, very Pixar's genius. I mean, it's just like there you go, you know, Sid's story. <laughs> pop tarts are ready. He didn't know he was hurting the toy. Um, before we go, I would just like to say that uh, I have copies of. Triumph Elite that are going to be free for anyone who wants them. Oh. This uh, book originally came out in hardcover. It was uh, professionally edited by the people, and now I have the rights back to it. It's never been number one on Amazon, but it has been number two. Ooh. So okay. uh, it, it's a good book, and uh, it's been around. It's still my best-selling science fiction book. 
but this is the old cover. I have a new cover. So, and he's getting ready to help. I'm willing to sign it. Go right up here. Help yourself. Yeah, we're about out of time. If you want to talk to me more or geek out with me about Blade Runner 2049 or anything else, I'm down on the Blade Runner 4 and the Art of Thank you for coming. Thank you all for coming. D&D Journey of the 5th Edition, and Scion, Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening. Down in the depths of the mountain, we dwarves spend our time forging powerful weapons, mining precious gems and metals, and feasting like kings. But after a day of digging for the next Arkenstone, this dwarf likes to come home to a package full of loot. Dungeon Crate is a monthly subscription box service forged specifically for RPG and tabletop gamers. Miniatures, dice, tokens, coins, maps, modules, terrain pieces, handcrafted items, RPG jewelry, and more are yours for only a few gold per month. You even get a digital crate along with a physical one as an added bonus. So are you brave enough to reward yourself with a dungeon crate? By Morden's beard, I hope so. Dungeoncrate.com. Let the adventure begin. And then we realized. But she must have a booth. I saw other people with books and booths. Yeah, and... Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the books. Are you guys doing the panels here perfect here? Yes. Since she gave me my book there, I'm actually going to talk about that one. Oh, yes. Very nice. I'm actually going to talk about Great. that one. It's the old cover. Yeah, this one? Yeah, she may have that one. Please. Wow. I can see why they were messing up your name. <laughs> is it is it Hornet? Hornard. 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 Hornard.